Well, welcome back to the show. Today we have with us Dr. Brad Jersik. How are you, Brad? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you. I believe you are my first uh, non-U.S. guest. Well, I feel pretty privileged about that. And <laughs> your hospitality is much appreciated. Well, thank you. Uh, I have had the blessing of going to Canada a couple of times in my adult life, um, although I have to admit, when I was younger, most of what I knew about Canada, I think, came from... A Five Iron Frenzy song. And I'm not sure that it was entirely reliable. Yeah, that would can you, happen. <laughs> would you mind if I tested a couple things with sure, you? Sure, let's go with it. Uh, do you have milk in a bag? Uh, we did in the 1970s. Okay, so that's gone out, huh? It, yeah. Um, what about... Yaks, lemmings, and marmosets. Any of those animals running around your backyard? Uh, I don't think we have those. Yeah, <laughs> no. We, <laughs> that could be Mongolia. Or, <laughs> Perhaps. There's some marmots around up in the mountains, but I'm not sure if that's the same as a marmoset. Okay, all right. Um, well, okay, so this one I know is true. They say lots of lumber, lumberjacks, and logs. Yeah, that's true. Especially, I'm on the west coast, and, and uh, the whole that whole lumber industry is a major major industry for us. Yeah, I uh, I was looking at your Twitter feed, and I don't think I had ever seen this term before. But you are you're rocking the progressive blogger beard, and I think you described your style as lumber sexual. Is that a phrase in Canada? Well, I just heard it probably 24 hours before you did, okay. and it, it seems to be like when a hipster gets out of control and thinks they might want to look orthodox or something, But I, and it came from England, actually, really? from these uh, Anglican priests who have been encouraged to grow their beards so that they can relate better to Muslims, I think, <laughs> and that's actually where it came from, and then the question was, is this sexist now that they have you know women priests, and should they grow them too? <laughs> So the great blogger, uh, Cindy Brandt, and I were riffing off of that for fun. I would think it might be difficult for her to match that style. Uh, she claimed she could go there, but I doubt it. Okay. They've got trees and mooses and sled dogs, lots of lumber and lumberjacks and logs. We don't think that's kind of a drag, that you have to go there to get milk in a bag. They say A instead of what or duh, that's a mighty power of well, so I was hoping we could talk about your book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, Hope, Hell, and the New Jerusalem. I would love to. And one of the things that I really loved about your book was the way that you unpacked the issue so thoroughly. Um, I feel like, you know, there was a time when we thought the atom was the smallest thing, and then we cracked it open and all this stuff pops out, and you get 
protons and neutrons and electrons and you dig deeper and there's quarks and all this stuff. And so that was sort of hell for me. It was this one thing. And then you pop it open and I read your book and there's Sheol and Hades and Tartarus, the pit, the deep, and it may be watery, it may be earth, there's Gehenna and the lake of fire. And these are all different streams of thought. Yeah, that's right. Um, These are different terms. And on top of having a multitude of terms um, that actually mean something different that where you can distinguish them from one another in technical ways and theological ways at the same time those individual terms mean something completely different in different eras and so for example on the one hand i was in my book uh, really looking at how we distinguish words like sheol hades and gehenna but to be honest, then when you pick up a King James Version and you look for those words, all you'll find is the word hell. And they've conflated all those words into that single English word. Well, in recent times, we've been we've been saying this isn't good. We need to really distinguish these and so on. But here's another uh, discovery we've made, is that, and that is just as in the century when King James wrote or commissioned his Bible, all these words sort of mushed together. They were sort of doing that in the first century too. And so um, even though we're trying to make distinctions between Sheol and Gehenna, a first century rabbi was sort of conflating and blending them. Hmm. And then on, on top of that, no matter what the first century rabbis thought, that doesn't mean Jesus was playing their game. He He's actually subverting the common understanding himself. Uh, on top of that, uh, whether those words were meant uh, literally and actually, or whether they were being used rhetorically is a whole other deal, because in the first centuries, they, they had no problem using rhetoric, that is, the language of um, emotions to create an emotional impact, not to tell you about the afterlife at all, but to deliver uh, urgent moral lessons about what our communities value. And then if you said, you mean you actually believe this? Like, well, of course not. But everybody knows this, you know. So <laughs> that's tricky, too. And so some of those complexities come out in my book. And then uh, and then just just as, you know, I finish, uh, I finish publishing it, and then there's like the Higgs boson of some <laughs> of these topics, too. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. And so you go from there and lay out, some different theories of the afterlife. And I I think some of the big categories are infernalism, which is what many of us are probably most familiar with. This is kind of the traditional hell. And then uh, annihilationism. And then multiple versions of universalism. So tell us a little bit about what those three positions are. Okay. So first of all, we have a few versions of infernalism or what people usually refer to as eternal conscious torment. I, I, I'm not sure it's fair to call it the traditional view um, entirely because the tradition actually, you'll see all three of these major categories in the tradition. But let's say it is the, the dominant view, um, at least in the last 1500 years. And, um, 
So you've got this eternal conscious torment, and I will say there's subcategories of that where depending on how literal you want to be. So some folks would say, no, it has to be actual fire, burning your actual skin that's being regenerated supernaturally for all <laughs> eternity. And then there'd be many others even in the ancient world from Augustine probably to Kelvin that would say it's it's obviously not that. it's uh, This is a, a metaphor, but it is eternal conscious torment. And the, the fires would not be um, a material fire, but it would be some sort of something worse than that even. <laughs> then you've got this uh, second view. You called it annihilation, and that's what I did in the book too. Uh, these days, the folks at Rethinking Hell, for example, which is a little movement, they would they would refer to conditionalism, and, and, and there's two major versions of that. Um, I'm told I get these backwards, but I'm going to use them how I use them. Um, <laughs> Conditional immortality and annihilationism would be two kinds of conditionalism. So in my in my definition, conditional immortality means when you die, only those who were believers are resurrected from the dead and the, the rest just stay dead. So death is the absolute end in conditional immortality. And then annihilation would be, no, everybody's resurrected. Everybody goes to the final judgment, and then only the believers go into heaven, and the unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire, but then they're consumed. So they're not in eternal conscious torment. They're just, like, burned up. And this is then like a second death to them. And then the third view, uh, some some um, talk about universalism, and there's a whole range of those, from a sort of pop universalism that's very sloppy and says... Jesus doesn't matter. Your response doesn't matter. There's no like kind of judgment. It's just everyone's automatically in and we're all happy together in heaven along with Hitler and so on. And then, um, but there's also these, uh, what we'd call evangelical universalists like Robin Perry and they're very careful. And they, so they would say this. Um, they believe that God is able to save everyone. He is willing to save everyone. So if he's able and he's willing, he will. However, how has he done that? And the means towards the salvation of all in his model would be um, the work of Christ on the cross that includes all humanity. So Christ is absolutely important. Uh, second, there will be a response, and a response is ne necessary. But when we see Jesus face to face, of course we'll respond. What do you think we'll do? You know, and and so there, this faith response then is available even after the grave, and then and there will be a judgment, but it'll be more like a um, truth and reconciliation commission, is how Sharon Baker would say it. And so we are held accountable to our, for our lives and so on. Now. All those, those are the three marriage views and their sub points. I would hold to something we call hopeful inclusivism. And it's, it's, um, it's not universalism because it demands that there is a possibility that someone could forever reject the mercy and grace of God. Um, but it's hopeful because like the hopeful universalists, we would say, but who would really, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but you have to have free will in principle, a free will possibility. And so guys like Callistus Ware and Hans Urs von Balthasar are Catholic and, and Orthodox theologians who've espoused that. So there we've got some hopeful inclusivism as sort of a, so I've been accused of universalism light. Well, it's okay <laughs> then fine. You know, 
but <laughs> uh, but we don't believe that you know the love of God would be coercive. Yeah. Well, and when you wrestle with the scriptures in your book, you go through each of these views, and you know I'll probably stumble over my words again, like I did with calling infernalism a traditional view. But uh, you you say that all of these views are in some sense represented in scripture. Yeah, that's that's really true. Um, and to give you a break, we the standard term is traditional. Yeah, you know, at, at least so, you know since the Pro- Protestant Reformation, perhaps, <laughs> and, and maybe longer. Yeah. Certain, well, from Dante's time for sure, uh, right? So, um, yeah. So your question again. I'm sorry uh, about all of these views being presented in Scripture. Right. You can build a strong biblical case for any one of these views. The trick is. How do you, how will you harmonize all of the scriptures without marginalizing or negating or ignoring some of them? So, so I, I just think it's very difficult to do that. And people haven't been honest about that overall. They've taken their pet scriptures. They've said, see, here the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. And then when presented with the uh, difficult scriptures and there, there will be difficulties for every one of these views, um, you can start to get a sense of if you get too dogmatic about your system, you will feel you will feel people manipulating scriptures that don't fit their system very well. And my, my just my hermeneutical conscience just won't, won't allow for that. I have to say, you know, when a let's say um, when a when an annihilationist or conditionalist quotes Philippians to me and they say, you know, we have a phrase here that says that for the wicked, their their end, their telos is destruction. Those are very strong words. And I have to say, wow, like that's a really you have the high ground on that one, you guys. And they're kind of surprised because they're like, what, am I going to attack you because you're treating scripture well? No, I just have to admit that's a tough, tough scripture to deal with. Yeah. Um, and then there's some that we thought were deal killers, but actually uh, any any of the views can interpret them their own way quite easily. Well, so, yeah, it seems like if you're going to try to make an argument for something, perhaps in this case, hopeful universalism, mm-hmm. to admit that Scripture makes a strong case for the other views seems like a, uh, a strategic error. So I'm going I'm to give you a tip here. I don't know if you've noticed this, but... Some other Christian authors will cherry pick the verses that best support their argument. Yeah. And I think that can be compelling. So you might want to think about that if you, yeah. if you write version two of the book. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, what I like doing is, is, uh, is cherry picking their verses and then undergo the weight of their argument. <laughs> like, wow, this is really, and, and, and then I'll stay there for a while. <laughs> and until I until I realize, yeah, but what about the rest of Scripture and right. how does this fit? Yeah, no, uh, joking aside, I, I really have been personally wrestling with how do we deal with the complexity of Scripture? It It is amazingly complex and diverse. And I grew up in a, uh, well, I, I suppose I would say my earlier views were more systematic and I wanted things to fit neatly. And so it has been tough for me. And one of the ways I've described it is that now I see that scripture is not univocal. And I think in the book you said that it is polyphonic. 
Yes, that's which right. I think maybe two ways of saying the same thing, and, and that we both like to confuse people with made-up words, perhaps. But yeah. Uh, yeah, Scripture, it's the Word of God, but it doesn't speak with one voice. It represents a lot of viewpoints. Sure. You know, some people have tried to emphasize that, God, you know, uh, how, well, you've got 66 authors and you've got, and, and they emphasize the diversity, but I want to, I want to run something by you, just see how, how it fits. What if we were to say, yep, you're right, God, there is one author, but there's multiple narrators. Mm. So we get the, we get the inspiration of scripture in that behind it, behind it, there is this, this word, God the word, right? Yeah. And then, and then he commissions and inspires um, not just many characters in like in a novel, but you know in a novel or a great story or an epic, you, you're going to have narrators with limited perspectives. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the real fun things in, in reading novels is when you have an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. And what you'll see in scripture is you've got God behind this thing, but he lets mm-hmm. his children tell the story. And I have to do a shout out to Peter Enns. That's his language. Mm-hmm. God let his children tell the story. And when his children tell the story, they are, they, they are, they are giving a real and inspired account of their perspective. And sometimes those perspectives, they're actually in debate with each other. And evangelicals are just tremendously offended by this, that they could, you could have more than one perspective in Scripture. It's like, remember, these are Jews. You know, <laughs> They have no problem gathering in a synagogue and hashing things out, and we get to see the conversation. And finally, the tension in that conversation comes to a head where God needs to come in person mm. uh, as Christ incarnate to show us, to finally give us, perfect theology where it had been imperfect before and polyphonic not yeah. univocal yeah yeah well yeah and in the the narratives you can see where these authors you know take peter and paul will disagree with one another and we have record of their conflict you know yeah. and, and yet i think then we expect their written word to be all in harmony right and uh, yeah and so maybe, uh, you know, we really get to see the most important things being fleshed out in that tension of their push and pull. Yeah, I suppose. And if you break the tension, you might actually lose the lose the uh, plot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how they say it in the UK. They, oh, so-and-so, he lost the plot. Yeah, when you prematurely break a tension that is embedded in the text by design, like faith and works, for example, uh-huh. um, you're going to lose the plot. The other is you could just you end up feeling like you have to choose one or the other. So if I could give you one example in eschatology, um, in the Western Church, they they um, felt like they needed to move to all those visions of the afterlife where you have two groups of people going to two destinations. So the saved and the damned going to heaven and hell, and um, and yet, that's not the only vision that we have in Scripture. So there's, in the Eastern Church, what they thought of was, no, all people come into the presence of the, um, of, of the river of fire that flows from the throne of God in Daniel 9. And that river of fire is the glory of the love of Jesus Christ. And your orientation to the fire mm-hmm. determines whether you experience God as heaven or hell. Yeah. And so 
Um, so that's quite a different way. And so people people can't harmonize those two visions because they can't be. So then they're like, well, which one will I pick? And I guess it's okay to 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 uh, have a favorite, <laughs> but but then at least admit the other one is there as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there uh, is a story out of Jewish folklore I heard that I thought was interesting. It, it sort of reminds me of that, uh, you know, going to the river of the fire of God that you just mentioned, that in the world to come, Moses will teach Torah all day long. And to the righteous, this will be heaven. And to the wicked, it will be hell. Yeah. And, and I, I sort this is not a directly biblical image, I, I don't think, although I guess it builds on the, the banquet imagery, which is biblical. I Part of me likes to ponder, what if the afterlife is this big banquet? And somehow, through the miracle of God's metaphysics, you're able to sit right next to everybody else. And those of us that have truly learned to love our neighbor and love our enemy, as Jesus commands, experience that as heaven. Yes. But if we have not yet learned to love, that would be hell, in essence. Wow. Yeah, you do get these kind of... I think that's a helpful metaphor. Uh, there's even hints of it in, in Psalm 23. Mm. Uh, in the presence of my enemies, it doesn't mean I'm sitting and eating, gloating at them. It means I'm in the presence of my enemies, and maybe they're eating too. Um, and you get this with like the Pharaoh and his armies experience the pillar of fire in a very different way than the children of Israel in the wilderness. Yeah. And then even the gospel itself, uh, is it Paul who says, uh, to some it's the aroma of life and to others the stench of death. Now, could be that uh, the afterlife is an extension of that that two orientation experience, the, the existential encounter. Um, if you love love, it's heaven. If you hate love, it's hell. Then the question is, is that the end game? Or could that experience of love still have a transformative, restorative effect on you? And yeah. uh, my official position is, I hope so. In <laughs> fact, I would say, dogmatically, the love of God obligates me to hope so. Yeah. Well, so talk to me a little bit more about that then. So we've talked about these different ideas, infernalism and conditionality and all that. And we've talked about how you can have different metaphors and different images. But how is it that you move towards hopeful universalism? Um, how do you pick kind of where you land on this? Okay. So, um, so it's sort of like there's, I think there's two ways to come at it, at least two that I've embraced in my lifetime and I had my shift. So uh, in my Calvinist days, we would have seen all the passages about destruction of the wicked. And we would have seen all the passage passages that are universal, like every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. As in Adam, all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. And there's a lot of these. There's like 30 of these kind of passages, universalist passages. So when as as a as a infernalist Calvinist, what I had to do with that is I said, yes, uh, Christ's Christ um, uh, saving work in some way was intended for all, although as a five pointer, I didn't quite believe that. But um, but the idea is this: then you take the universalist passages and you make it only apply to the elect. So. So all doesn't ever mean all. All means all of the elect. So every knee of the elect will bow, every tongue of the elect will, and then and then the, um, the non-elect go into eternal destruction. 
what the what a hopeful inclusivist like myself does or a universalist would do is they would say yes we see the destruction passages and we see the universal passages and they are simply consecutive mm. so the way the the language they used in the old days the very the ancient days was we're in this present age and then in the age to come the age to come is an age of judgment and process and that judgment and process will work out, including including whatever um, kind of fire of purging we need to go through. But in First Corinthians 15, which is a much stronger telescope than even Revelation, because even Revelation 21, 22, it's still processes. Um, the wicked are outside the city still. The spirit and the bride are saying, come, and the gates of the city are open. The nations are coming in, and they're getting healed. So that's process, right? That's the age to come. But then you see 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the end of the ages. There will be an end of the ages when there are no more enemies left, when Christ hands the kingdom over to God, his Father, and now God is all in all. And the early church fathers like uh, you know, Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and so on. They would they would say uh, and all and in all. So so there will be no more place where the love of God is not and and has not um, been victorious. So so to me that's that's what I observe universalists doing with this is they just say if you make it consecutive it's no problem. Yeah. Hmm. So you wrote this book. Uh... I think going on seven, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. yep. How has your thinking evolved since then? Any new thoughts for us on this topic? Yeah, I would, I would want to just mention two that are really important. And um, one of them I already shared, and that was that I think during the first century, this idea of Sheol and Gehenna actually were sort of conflated among the rabbis. Um, so... In much of the rest of Christian history, we've said Sheol is the grave, the place where people go now when they die, or Hades, if you know, and, or par so paradise and Hades are sort of an intermediate state until the final judgment, and nobody goes to Gehenna until after the final judgment. So, no, if if if, if Hades or Sheol is the grave, that's where people go now. That would technically mean no one goes to hell yet. You only go to hell after, if hell is the lake of fire, right? Well, so so in making that, and, and 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 then by the way, when Jesus keeps quoting Jeremiah, you'll notice that Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom in Jeremiah actually isn't anything about the afterlife. It's just the destruction of Jerusalem. So this is a case where the meaning of Gehenna is shifting from destruction to afterlife torment in a lake of fire. Uh, Sheol is moving from just a shadowy place into something more like a torment where the, la uh, the rich man is wanting water. And then and then around Jesus' time, they kind of just see it all as the same thing. It's hell. And people go there. Now, here's a, sh a shock, though. M they didn't believe it was eternal. Yeah. Uh, most of the Pharisees... Um, that, or most of the rabbis that were teaching this stuff in the era of Jesus, they would say, "Oh yes, people, people go to um, people go to Gehenna or Hades or whatever." But it's um, you know they and based on a passage in Zechariah, they would say one third of people go straight to heaven or Abraham's bosom or paradise. The other two thirds go through the fire. After a year, about half of those 
so the original third, um, they go up and they make it through like a purgatory into paradise, and the rest are just burned up. So there's no eternal conscious torment. It, it, now, they're not all in agreement on this, but this would be like a common view. Yeah. And it's actually more more uh, sane, I think, <laughs> than, than many modern Christians. The, our idea of judgment is so cruel. It's unbelievable. Um, so that's one thing. You've got the... Um, this this idea that the meaning of Gehenna and Hades and Sheol keeps shifting, but it does sort of conflate in that era. The other thing that's even this is far more important. Oh, so I left it for now. Um, the rich man and Lazarus is always pulled out as sort of this deal killer. You know, this is you've got a guy and he's in torment, and the scripture clearly says no one can cross the chasm. He's in torment, and no one can come back. And even if they came back, people wouldn't listen and all of that. And that's how it is. And here's the amazing thing. The punchline to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mm. And especially what we call Holy Saturday in the Orthodox Church, where Christ descends into Hades. He preaches the gospel there, according to First Peter, Evangelion. And, he, and then Peter says... The spirits, uh, uh, those who had been judged in the flesh, and he refers to even the time of Noah when it was really bad, those who were judged in the flesh are made alive in the spirit. And it's the very same language uses um, Peter uses for the resurrection of Jesus. He was condemned in the flesh on the cross, made alive in the spirit. So you've got this, you've got at least this one precedent for post-mortem evangelism that generates... Um, a victory, and then uh, Ephesians says that Jesus emerges from from the lower earthly regions with a tr a host or a train of captives in his wake, and so they they form a parade behind him and come out of the tombs. And some would say, well, no, this you know that's just the righteous. It doesn't say that. It says the people who rejected the message of Noah actually and are part of that. So in the early church, this becomes this fantastic thing where they say. You don't get to read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus without reference to the fact that Jesus crossed the uncrossable chasm. Hmm. Uh, he preached good news to those who were down there. And when he emerged from there, he emerged with a whole, uh, a, whole uh, a, co a company. And then the question was this. Um, so did everyone come out or just some of them? And uh, you have... Uh, you have a whole liturgy and sort of extra biblical um, story, uh, Gospel of Nicodemus, for example, just saying, hey, when Jesus went down, he found Adam and Eve and he led them out. And, and John the Baptist was preaching there. Hey, everybody, repent and follow him. Now's our time. And they did. So that's that sounds quite hopeful. Yeah. Well, and if I could... Take us back to one other thing in the book when you were talking about that and, and you mentioned the prophets and the, the lake of fire. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about the lake of fire being connected to the Dead Sea, which right. I thought was just fascinating to me. I had not heard that before your book, but you talk about the Jewish traditions and the associated association of the Dead Sea with the fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah and that connection. And I, I, I think it is such a beautiful image in the prophets. Um, I remember when I was in Israel, we went down to see the Dead Sea, and um, 
our tour guide, this Palestinian Christian named Nadal, he said that uh, archaeologists discovered a uh, second century AD fishing net on the shore of the Dead Sea. Oh, wow. Why do you think they would have brought a fishing net? None of us could figure this out. There's never been fish in the Dead Sea. You know, nothing can live there. He said it was the Bar Kokhba revolt. The followers of Bar Kokhba, who thought that he was the Messiah, looked at the prophecy in Ezekiel. And yes. it says that when the Messiah comes, this river will burst forth from the temple and flow down into the Dead Sea, and even the Dead Sea will become living again. Yes. And, uh, you know, I think often Christians don't know what to do with prophecies like that because, uh, you know, obviously the Dead Sea is not literally living again, at least yet. But this spiritual imagery, I think, of the renewal of even this wasted land where Sodom and Gomorrah were and where nothing can live to be teeming with life again is uh, such beautiful imagery. Yeah, that is beautiful imagery, and it, it you couple that with the prophecy in Jeremiah that 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 valley of death, Gehenna, valley of Hinnom, that under the new covenant it will become a garden. Yeah. So you've got Gehenna becoming a garden. You've got the lake of fire becoming a place where people are fit, actually fishers of men. Yeah. Right. And um, and and it it's quite exciting that way. Uh, and so this is what we pray and hope and preach towards because none of uh, a hope like that doesn't negate the call to evangelism it actually empowers it and enlivens it i've never been such an aggressive evangelist in my whole life because i've no dirty little secrets to threaten people with it's mm. like just such good news but they need to hear it yeah that's yeah, good news for a suffering world that needs a savior to make a difference starting here and now yeah now in in the book of acts uh, there's this this neat word that became a, a catchword in the early church and at times was controversial, but the Greek word is apokatastasis, and it means the restoration of all things. And yeah. uh, wow, wouldn't that be interesting if if Christ actually came to uh, to launch that program and was able to complete it? Hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, land the episode. So. Uh... Where can people find you? You have a, a website? Yeah, I, I'm at bradjersak.com, B-R-A-D-J-E-R-S-A-K. And um, and then from there, they can find a few blogs where, that I'm editing. And I'm also the editor-in-chief of an online magazine called uh, CWR, Christianity Without the Religion magazine. And so they can look around. We've got a lot of resources on there, including video interviews and, and whatever, magazines and, and blogs. And that's at ptm.org. So I'm, I'm basically, yeah, I'm running ptm.org or sharing it with the previous founder. So uh, they could find me there also. All right. Or Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, I, uh, I think I saw on your Twitter feed that your Facebook account was pretty well full up. So are you... Uh... Well, we have, um, we, I have a public page where everyone oh. can go to. And currently, uh, I found out we, I had enough friends that had unfriended me <laughs> or their accounts went, um, dormant that now we've, we've opened up new spots. So grab them while you can. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate the time, Brad. It was, uh, a fascinating conversation. My pleasure. That's a lot to pack in in a little bit, but people can listen a few times, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, well, and I'll mention uh, your book is also on audio version. And so actually the first time that I read it was listening to it. And so, okay. yeah, it can be a good way to, to go through it a couple of times. The uh, speaker did not quite represent your Canadian accent. But no, I noticed that. It was that. pretty good. 
<laughs> and it may be on Kindle as well by now. So okay. uh, folks want to check that out. Yeah, you happy if you'd grab a copy? It's definitely a topic that warrants uh, more than thirty minutes of discussion. Sure, and I, and and regardless of a person's um, point of view on it, I think they'll find the data itself helpful, and that I'm fair enough that they won't feel sort of beat up on if they read it. They they'll actually get support for their point of view too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Have a good night. You too. Bye bye. Six.